Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of O2 and You. I'm your host, David Garbett, and joining me on the podcast this week, Dr. Steve Brown at uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, the Chemical Sciences Laboratory in Boulder, Colorado. Um, Dr. Brown is a research chemist there, and uh, that'll make more sense as we get into the discussion. Mainly our topic today, I think the way I would describe it, we've, we've covered air quality in the past and it's been something of air quality 101 along the Wasatch Front. Today, we're gonna take it up a notch and we're gonna talk about um, really what happens with uh, some different chemical reactions that help exacerbate our summertime problem and our wintertime problem. But first of all, Dr. Brown or Steve, welcome to the program. It's great to have you here. Thanks. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, a few weeks, months ago, you very generously walked me through very slowly and you know, acknowledged to everyone. Chemistry was probably my least favorite science topic <laughs> in school. You know, no offense, chemists. No offense. I'm glad you're out there. I, I struggled on that one. So you were, I, I was a very slow pupil, but very helpful. And I just thought that conversation was so great and wanted to help educate more people about this really interesting research that you're doing that is important to help us understand some of these more complex um, reactions in the atmosphere that exacerbate our pollution problem. So thanks for coming on the program. Um, I so feel and, like I'll, you... and I'll and I'll and I'll just interrupt you long enough to say that uh, I'm one of the few people who really really enjoyed chemistry classes in high school and college, <laughs> and so uh, for whatever reason, it was just something I found enjoyable that I was good at, and uh, and so here I am, and uh, and yeah, I'm I'm a research chemist and a chemistry professor, and um, it's what I do. Yeah, well, thank goodness, helping all of us. <laughs> tell us a little bit more. Yeah, before we get into that, tell us a little bit about your background because you've been with NOAA for quite a while. Um, what got you interested in this? Why did you? Yeah, I, I yeah, I started. Uh, well, like I said, I started really just in chemistry, uh, and when I was in college, I started learning uh, also about environmental issues just in the course of some of the chemistry courses I was taking. So, uh, you know, I was a student in the 1980s, and in the late 1980s. Uh, the ozone hole. You may remember the the days when uh, the ozone hole was a, was a, a a big issue. It was very much in the news, and uh, you know I I had some some really excellent uh, chemistry professors who were teaching me about the chemistry of the ozone hole when I was an undergraduate, and I just thought that is really the kind of science that I want to do when I'm when I you know when I grow up as it were, and. Um, uh, you know, I took a little detour from there. I was a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin, did some very fundamental research in physical chemistry, but always kind of maintained that interest in atmospheric chemistry and came back to do uh, postdoctoral work at NOAA starting in the late 90s. And I've been here ever since. Wow, for quite a while. Yeah. You have, um, you know, I think we'd have to dedicate what half the program just to go down the laundry list of articles that you've written, collaborated in, research that you've done. You've got a lot. Maybe can you tell us just a little bit about some of the, the projects that you've worked on in your time at NOAA? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I started out 
as a as a laboratory chemist working on the sorts of trying to trying to understand the chemical reactions that are important in the atmosphere. I actually started up in the upper atmosphere and the stratosphere, just just uh, very much like the kind of thing that I was telling you about that I got excited about as an undergraduate. Uh, and but one of the things that I had also learned to do was to uh, build some uh, instruments that were based on spec what we call spectroscopy. So how do molecules and particles interact with light? Um, and it turned out that those kind of methods and techniques that I had learned as a graduate student were very applicable to uh, being able to go out into the atmosphere and, uh, and, and detect the kinds of levels that you need to, to, um, to be able to measure in order to say something meaningful about the composition of the air around us. And so that really led me into a career in fieldwork. So I developed a set of instruments in the mid 2000s that were based on some of these methods and got involved in NOAA's aircraft research program because of that. And so I've, I have really kind of grown up with that program working in a whole bunch of different places, uh, starting in New England and moving to Texas and out to California and um, really all across uh, you know, the, the continental US and, and um, have had the good fortune to be able to do this kind of work in places like Asia and Europe as well. So it's been a very exciting thing to do. Uh, and, and it's, uh, you know, in the last uh, 15 years or so, it's been a very focused uh, research program in understanding air quality and, uh, and the kind of chemical reactions and emissions that, uh, that govern the health of the air that we all have to breathe. Quick follow-up question on uh, spectroscopy. Uh, yeah. Same techniques used for, uh, in astronomy as well? Sure, yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, you, you point the telescope out at the stars and you can measure the composition of what's in the gases around stars and planets and out in interstellar space. Um, you can do the same thing in Earth's atmosphere, which is made of, made of gas. And uh, a lot of the gases in Earth's atmosphere have very characteristic uh, frequencies or wavelengths or colors of light that they absorb. And you can take advantage of that to really say very accurately and precisely and sensitively what's there. So this is the same technique that was used that I think, again, for people like me that are not so familiar with the James Webb Telescope that the, it, I was gonna say the image, not the image, but the um, chemical composition of the one exoplanet they pointed the telescope. That's at right. Yeah, that's right. That, that's, ex that's exactly how they do it. Um, very different application, very different kind of techniques, but at the end of the day, it's the same concept. Okay. Super yeah. cool. Okay. So then you turned yeah. your attention, um, bring you back on once we start working on space and the stratosphere. Uh, but turned your attention to um, some issues around air pollution. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so I've, I've been doing air pollution chemistry uh, like I said, for a little bit more than 15 years, maybe a little closer to 20. Um, but, uh, and, it, and my interest in that has been based on just being able to develop these instruments to begin with. And then from there, I've kind of moved on into really the science and the core of trying to understand, um, you know, what are, what are the important air quality issues today and how have they evolved, uh, especially mm -hmm. in the last 20 years, because there's been a lot of change. Yeah. What got you interested in um, looking at our problems here in Utah? Because you've, you've done research here in the Wasatch Front or in your research in yeah, the Lake Valley and, and yeah. you into Basin. Yeah, what, what I've spent a lot of time your attention? In, 
Yeah, I've spent a lot of time in Utah. Uh, we got interested in Utah in, uh, uh, I want to say around 2010. And at that time, uh, the, the real issue uh, was these uh, winter ozone phenomena that you may, may some of your listeners may know about uh, that um, uh, occurred in, in oil and gas basins in Utah and other states in the Intermountain West. Uh, at that time, actually, Wyoming was really the hotspot for this. Um, but uh, we had done a lot of work on ozone chemistry and summertime ozone chemistry, uh, which is a longstanding, very well-known problem. Um, this idea that there could be ozone in the wintertime was something new to us and scientifically very challenging. And it turned out that it was happening in Utah. And so we started thinking about doing work there and, and, uh, and just got engaged uh, talking with uh, folks at uh, you know, the Utah Division of Air Quality and uh, others in the state government there about their needs. And we set up a, a research program that spanned a few winters uh, in the Uinta Basin working out of Vernal. Um, and so it sort of built from there. And uh, from that point, we also uh, understood that there were some uh, important uh, air quality issues in the Salt Lake Valley that I guess have also been very long-standing uh, that affect a lot more people than um, than there are in the in place like the Uinta Basin. So uh, we kind of moved from the Uinta Basin over to the Salt Lake area. This is probably a good place to just pause for a second to walk through the three, the really kind of three different pollution problems here that will come up during our discussion as we progress. Our, our viewers and listeners are familiar with our bad air quality in the winter. You know, people will shorthand them as the, we call it the inversion. Um, think of those miserable days in the winter when it just feels gray and you can't see the sun and um, you know your eyes are itching or you, a lot of people will feel that. So this is a problem that we're, we're gonna talk about that one. And that revolves around fine particulates we're going to talk about um, our summertime problem here along in Salt Lake and in the Wasatch Front, which is a ground level ozone problem. And uh, we're going to talk, you mentioned also, this is, I told you we we're going from 101 to a slightly more advanced class today. And this is the asterisk, like you mentioned, Steve, that in the Uinta Basin, get this unique phenomenon that was only recently observed in the United States of in the winter having ozone problems in select areas. And the thing that ties together that we really want to talk about today is that you know, obviously people know pollution comes out of tailpipe. And I think when we think about pollution, we think about a smokestack and those billowing clouds come out or, or a dirty car that's not functioning well and you can see the black soot coming out of the tailpipe. That's one source of emission. But for a significant part of our problems, it's not, um, that's not the end of the story, I guess maybe it's the way to describe it. And we have, this is really where we, we need a chemist because you have different gases that interact in the atmosphere to create um, either create a novel pollution problem like ozone or to add to an existing pollution problem like our fine particulate. Uh, yep. Did I get the background correct? That's all correct. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to add to that if you want to uh, just tell me where you think the best starting point is. Yeah, for let's, listeners. We'll, we'll, let's uh, jump we'll into going. the winter problem in Salt Lake. So it's fine All particulate right. and maybe just lay the groundwork for, again, the obvious ones that people understand 
like how the emissions that come out of tailpipes, that come out of the, the ventilations from homes, that come out of the big smokestacks cause the problem. But the thing that you've really been digging into, what happens with some of these other chemicals that then right. exacerbate the issue? Right. All right. So we'll start with with fine particulates, as you said, it's often referred to as PM 2.5. Uh, you, you know, your your listeners and viewers may already know that PM 2.5 refers to particulate matter with a diameter less than two and a half microns, right? So this is this is pretty small stuff, and that's important because that's the reason it stays suspended in air. In fact, uh, when we say fine particulate matter small smaller than two and a half microns. We're normally talking about individual particles that are about a tenth of that size. So typically, they're going to be about 0.25 microns, mm. um, and uh, that is a small enough particle that it can stay suspended in air for a couple of weeks at a time. And so, once that kind of particulate matter actually forms, especially in a place like Salt Lake, where you don't have a lot of ventilation and where the air tends to be quite stagnant in the winter time, it can really persist and it, and it can build up. Um, and it's also small enough that uh, we can easily breathe it in. It can penetrate quite deeply into our lungs. And so uh, this is the, you know, the origin of the health effects that come from having these fine particulates in the air that uh, I think uh, many of your listeners probably know something about. Um, but uh, you asked about sources. And so we can, uh, you know, we can go to kind of what, what, what causes this, what, what makes this kind of type of pollution occur, uh, especially in Salt Lake City and in the winter season. Uh, and the place you have to start to understand that is to say that, that the fine particulate pollution in the Salt Lake region is very predominantly made of something called ammonium nitrate. So, um, and Salt Lake is actually kind of unusual in that way. It's not uncommon for ammonium nitrate to be a large component of particulate matter in the wintertime. That occurs in many places in the United States, but it's much more predominant in the Salt Lake region than it is in other parts of the United States in the wintertime. Mm. So about, about three quarters uh, of the fine particulate matter that you experience in the wintertime, at least during the really severe pollution episodes, is made of this stuff. And you can break it down. Right, so it's and when I say break it down, you can break down the words in that in that name, ammonium nitrate. So, ammonium is kind of what it sounds like. Uh, it's actually derived from ammonia, and uh, when that uh, undergoes acid-base chemistry in the atmosphere, you get ammonium, which is uh, which is an ion that's formed from ammonia. The nitrate is a little bit more complicated. Uh, that's uh, what we call, you know, the the anion. It's the it's the actually acid part of ammonium nitrate, and it is coming from um, a variety of different sources. But but you know, when you hear the word nitrate, um, you can think of nitrogen, and that it's really the source of the nitrogen that is important in understanding how that ammonium nitrate gets into the air in, in Salt Lake. So. That's where you come to the kinds of sources you were talking about that everybody's familiar with. So, uh, anytime you have a combustion source, you know whether it's a car engine and a tailpipe, whether it's a smokestack, uh, whether it's you know somebody's home heating, any of those sorts of processes. Whenever you're heating air uh, in a combustion process, there's always some amount of of pollution that comes out in the form of what we call nitrogen oxides. So it takes the nitrogen and the oxygen, which are those two most abundant constituents of the air and you heat them up to high temperature and they combine, they make these nitrogen oxides 
And that's the thing that comes out of your tailpipe. Um, and then that, nit that nitrogen oxide has to turn into this form that will react with ammonia. So it undergoes a set of chemical reactions and makes nitrate. Uh, it's chemical formula NO3 minus. Um, and that is combining with the ammonia. The, and the ammonia is sort of an interesting one in that it could come from a few different sources, but in the area around uh, the Wasatch, it's probably primarily an agricultural source. So uh, that's evaporating from, uh, from farms, uh, you know, animal feeding activities, these sorts of things um, that uh, are prevalent, not right in Salt Lake City, but certainly in the areas around Salt Lake City. And so when that urban air mixes with the, uh, the air that, uh, you know, the urban air that's very rich in these nitrogen oxides and the nitrate mixes with this agricultural air that's very rich in ammonia, you get ammonium nitrate and um, it, it just, the conditions for producing that are very favorable in the area around the Wasatch Front. So can I stop you for a second? Cause this is Absolutely. really, I think some really interesting stuff here. So I, I'm assuming researchers had this question of, let's understand better the composition, chemical composition behind PM 2.5 to see what we can learn in the Salt Lake Valley and found out that three quarters of the PM 2.5 they measured had this chemical composition, ammonium nitrate that you've described, this, this significant marker. Now, am I understanding that that ammonium nitrate then is an indicator that it's a chemical reaction as opposed to a byproduct or an, an initial product of combustion? Yeah. That's right. Okay. So it's so that's it's, it's not coming straight out of the tailpipe, right? So that's, so that's yeah, yeah, that's the huge one. And I want to make sure people we talk about that. So many places, again, PM 2.5 comes out of tailpipes, like it can be emitted directly. And it, that's it the is. product of combustion, right? Largely combustion. It can be. And 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 we refer to that as primary aerosol, right? Um, okay. The process I'm describing is known as secondary aerosol. Yeah. And so usually when we talk about it, I, it, a lot of times when we talk about this issue in the public, what we're often shorthanding is just what are those primary sources of PM 2.5? And again, it's, you know, that largely the process of combustion, your, your car put out these tiny, tiny particles immediately out of the tailpipe. And because like, you described they're so small they stay suspended our homes right. heating in the in the winter puts out some emissions and part of those emissions are tiny particles and it's doing that immediately there's no this is coming out immediately the way you're saying is researchers dug into the, the composition and found three quarters of these particles that are sitting up in the air um, during bad events have a signature that says these didn't form directly out of the tailpipe. What happened is that there was some sort of chemical reaction that took a gas, formed a small particle that does all of this damage, and three quarters of what's sitting up in the atmosphere is from that. Did well, I get it's actually that right? more. Yeah, you got that right. Except it's more than three quarters. So three quarters of it is, is ammonium nitrate. Oh, okay. You know, ammonium nitrate is for sure secondary. 
The other 25% is a combination of what we refer to as sulfate. That may be a, a term that's, that's known to your, your audience. It comes from, from sulfur dioxide, from SO2 emissions. And then the rest is organic. So it's a whole variety of carbon containing compounds, the kind of stuff that you didn't want to learn about in your organic chemistry course. But uh, that stuff makes aerosol uh, in, in the atmosphere. And it's, um, uh, most of that stuff is also secondary. So the, the amount that's primary is actually a pretty small fraction. It's probably less than 10%, maybe, maybe much less than 10%. This, that, that's just nuts. I think that's so crazy because I, I didn't understand that. I don't know how many people here understand that. And that seems like a pretty significant advancement in understanding of this pollution problem. When was that discovered? When was it the researchers realized this yeah, was I mean, secondary? So, uh, I mean, we got in, involved in doing this research in the Salt Lake region, you know, pretty recently in 2017. The, the basic outlines of what I just talked about has been known for a few decades. Uh, yeah. So um, uh, I would say, um, yeah, probably since about uh, sometime in the 19, about when I was in college, actually starting to learn some of this stuff, uh, you know, the broad outlines of what I'm talking about um, probably became pretty, pretty well understood. Uh, I would say, you know, I, I mentioned organic being a part of the, you know, uh, carbon containing compounds being a part of the aerosol as well, uh, or part of the particulate matter as well. And that component has been much more recently researched. So a lot of the uh, underlying processes that lead to what we call secondary organic aerosol are much more recently discovered. Um, but the, you know, the broad, the, mm. the broad outlines of where does PM 2.5 come from? Is it mostly primary? Is it mostly secondary? I think we've known that for, for quite some time. So, and before we, you know, talk a little bit more about why does that chemical reaction happen? Why do these things that you've talked about, the ammonia-based pollutants, the um, nitrogen, the nitrates combine and, and form that? Uh, you know, I think this is, again, we have to hold a few things in our head while we're talking about it. So your car, the, your homes, um, uh, when, you're, when you're heating in the winter, if you're using natural gas, you've got a vent. Those, and those big smokestacks, they'll put out the PM 2.5 directly, but then they also put out different chemicals that have a reaction that then, as we are talking about the secondary formation, forms PM 2.5. So it's not, you know, even though you've mentioned some of these new things to be worried about, like uh, fertilizer sitting on the ground and evaporating into the atmosphere, um, it, it's kind of this double whammy from our sources of combustion that you get the particles immediately, but then you also get chemical compounds that come together to, to exacerbate that problem. Yeah, that's right. And actually that's one of the reasons why it is so widespread. So for example, if you, and, we, and we've done this, we've flown an airplane through all of the valleys in the Wasatch region, right? Uh, and measured how much particulate matter was in any different place during various places during what you call an inversion. So mm -hmm. when we did that, we would, we would focus on the Cache Valley to the north of you, Salt Lake Valley, where the urban area is, kind of the whole region over the Great Salt Lake, and then also the Utah Valley where, where Provo is, Utah Lake is. And you find about the same amount of particulate matter in all of those places. And it's made of pretty much the same stuff wherever you go. And that's really telling you that this stuff took some time to get there. 
long enough that the meteorology mixed it all up. Uh, and it's also a, a real signature of something that is secondary like that. Anything that's primary that's coming right from, the, from, a, from a source is most concentrated near the source. And it's much more typical for these secondary processes to lead to very widespread pollution, like the kind of thing that that whole region experiences in the wintertime. Yeah, well, that's uh, wow, fascinating. And that because part of what I was going to ask you is that you know how do those concentrations play out in those different areas? But you're saying that they are relatively uniform during they, the. They are. Uh, it it actually uh, is is sometimes the case that the Cache Valley has uh, has higher levels of particulate matter than the Salt Lake Valley, and you may you may already know that you may have experienced that. Uh, but that's more of a meteorological effect than, than a chemical one. Uh, it just turns out that um, the depth to which the pollution is mixed, that is to say, you know, how deep is the inversion layer in the Cache Valley, that's a, just a shallower layer of air. And so things tend to be more concentrated huh. up in the Cache Valley than they do in the Salt Lake Valley. And, and so there are times when you have really quite severe uh, particulate pollution in, in cash, but um, it's very much proportional to just, you know, how deeply mixed is the atmosphere in any one of those places. Huh. And I think that one, yeah, looking at the differences that we have in Cache Valley and, and pollution peaks, and I think if you've spent time here, you, you sense that there's something different about entering the Cache Valley and kind of the break from the Cache Valley compared to Salt Lake Valley, going up to Davis and Weber, going down to, to Utah Valley. They're different valleys, but pretty well connected. Yeah, um, and so that's, and that's one of the kind of the research questions I would say that we still need to, to answer um, because you do have to have mixing of the air between these different valleys in order for this phenomenon to happen. And I think the mechanisms, the meteorological mechanisms by which you get transport of air between those different valleys when you have these very stagnant conditions, uh, these tight inversions as, as you have in the wintertime. That's a really important question. And you've got a, a lot of really talented meteorologists actually at the University of Utah who think pretty hard about this and have done a lot of work on that one. Okay. So tell us a little bit about why, what is it about the, the gases, the um, reacting with the atmosphere that leads to this, this process that creates the secondary PM 2.5. Yeah, sure. Uh, um, so, and I, I, I'll preface this by saying that um, one of the real interesting things that we found is that it's the same set of chemical reactions happening in the wintertime and making PM 2.5 that also give you the summertime ozone problem. So I, I will have time to get to summertime ozone, but um, what I'm well, going to chemically yeah, just be this, Maybe covering two birds with one or killing two birds with one stone here. Tell us a little bit about because we've we've mentioned you know that we have this secondary PM two point five. Ozone is really about just so you're saying it's the similar. It's just a chemical reaction, but ozone doesn't come out of a tailpipe. You don't. Uh, ozone is purely about uh, chemical reaction in the yep. atmosphere. Correct. Yep. So there's no question that ozone is is secondary. Uh, and and has to come has to be made chemically in the atmosphere. It certainly isn't coming out of tailpipes, but it's certainly also very prevalent in places where there's high air pollution. So uh, this is a again a very well understood problem as far as uh, the basic chemistry that makes it. Um, but the thing that I think wasn't understood until we came to Salt Lake and did our 2017 study, or at least not not uh, I would say 
widely understood is that it's really the same set of chemical reactions that are going to mm. give you that ammonium nitrate in the wintertime. Uh, and when the weather's warm uh, you, uh, and you have a little bit more sunlight, that same set of chemical reactions tends to make ozone instead of making ammonium nitrate, which is so, sort of one of the interesting things that we've learned. Um, yeah, did you, but, was that your hypothesis going in? Were you surprised by that? Not. It, it was not at all. We we're very surprised by that. Yeah. Um, so, it, so it, it has to do with you know I, I, went, I kind of went through the concept of nitrogen oxides that you know these combustion processes make nitrogen oxides as a byproduct. That's this primary pollutant that we are concerned about. Um, and it it turns out you know to to get a nitrogen oxide to turn into nitrate, which is what makes the ammonium nitrate, you have to oxidize it, and those oxidation reactions. Uh, involve a separate set of compounds that are actually not part of the particulate matter. They're not part of the ozone, but they get involved in these chemical reactions. And those things are called volatile organic compounds. And uh, again, I don't know how familiar your listeners or, or viewers are with that term, but uh, these are things that um, they, they also can come out of tailpipes. I mean, I mean, gasoline is made of organic compounds and some of the gasoline that goes into your engine doesn't combust all the way and comes out your tailpipe. Uh, there's evaporative emissions of gasoline. Uh, there are lots and lots of other kinds of sources of volatile organic compounds in urban areas. Uh, very, very, very wide range. Um, residential wood combustion, for example, is something that people talked about as a, as a wintertime source of pollutant that makes a lot of these volatile organic compounds when you burn wood mm. in a fireplace, part of what comes out of the, the, the chimney is volatile organic compounds. Uh, and it turns out, you know, things like paints and inks and your personal care products and things like this uh, all are made of carbon. They all get into the air and they all contribute to these volatile organic compounds. So it turns out that when you have nitrogen oxides and volatile organic compounds together in the air with sunlight, they introduce these, what we would call oxidation cycles. And the product of that oxidation cycle, the predominant product of that oxidation cycle in the wintertime is this nitrate that I talked about uh, being an important, important product uh, that, that you know, ends up combining with the ammonium and making the PM 2.5. Um, and, and that's the part that, um, I would say wasn't wasn't very well recognized uh, prior to the work we did there in in 2017. So everything I just described is well understood when you start talking about summertime ozone. This is exactly how you make ozone in the summertime. Anyone will tell mm -hmm. you you take NOx plus VOCs plus sunlight, you get ozone in the summertime. You don't get this in the wintertime, and and, and except for this this very special case that we can talk about if you'd like to, uh, you know, mm -hmm. in uh, in the Uinta Basin. Mm -hmm. um, and, and one of the reasons is that chemical cycles are just very inefficient at making ozone when you don't have very much sunlight. Uh, and uh, that's probably a little bit more chemistry than uh, I'll, I'll try to get into the details with uh, uh, for your audience, but the oxidation cycles in the, in, when you have dark conditions like you have in the wintertime just tend to be less efficient at making ozone. And so if you don't go all the way to ozone, you end up, in a way, you can think of it as stopping at nitrate, and um, and and so uh, so one of the things that we learned about the winter system is that uh, if there were if the concentrations of volatile organic compounds were lower, 
these oxidation rates would be slower. And that would actually be uh, a strategy that you could use to mitigate this, this fine particulate matter. So even though ammonium nitrate doesn't have carbon in it, if you reduce the amount of volatile organic compounds in the atmosphere, that would be an effective way to reduce the, the nitrate pollution you have. Yeah, and that was the real insight that's useful to people, you know, for example, at UDAC, uh, you know, U U Utah Division of Air Quality, in thinking about, you know, what sorts of steps to recommend to, uh, to address the, the wintertime air pollution. Um, the other kind of converse thing about this that's really unfortunate is these nitrogen oxides, which are really the source of the nitrate itself. It turns out that if you reduce the amount of nitrogen oxide, it has the opposite effect. It has this very counterintuitive effect where reductions in nitrogen oxides will tend to actually increase the amount of nitrate pollution. Um, and that's because the whole system is very nonlinear. And uh, so if you want to think about the interactions of all these different pollutants, you often have to ask, which thing, you know, which knob do I turn? Which thing do I try to reduce in order to reduce the amount of this particulate matter pollution? And it turns out, in, you know, what we really learned, and I think we're able to identify with that 2017 study, was that uh, it's the VOCs which aren't really recognized as a, as a participant in, the, in uh, the formation of ammonium nitrate. Okay, so a lot of really important stuff to hit on here. Let's yeah. go back through this slowly. Um, and, and so I understand you talked about these chemical reactions, you know, walk me through in practice, like here in Salt Lake, typically when we have these really high pollution events, it's not always, I mean, sometimes you'll get a bit of filtered sunlight. Sometimes, especially I remember when I was younger, they tended to be a lot more really solid gray level trapped. Is the chemical reaction happening in that area? Is the chemical reaction happening up higher? Where does that actually happen? Um, well, it happens all through that whole layer, uh, uh, but there certainly will be some vertical dependence to that. So if you have some more sunlight up high, then the chemistry will go faster than it does uh, down low where you have less. That, that, is okay. certainly the, that is certainly true. But that layer will turn over fast enough to mix the whole thing uh, so that the anything that's made up high is going to end up at the surface and vice versa. Okay, and because it's kind of hazy, that's one of the key reasons why it's becoming secondary PM two point five and not winter ozone. Um, that's part of the reason. The other reason is just that it's winter and the days yeah. aren't very long, and the sun's not very high in the sky, and mm. the amount of sunlight you have in the winter time is quite a bit smaller than the amount you get in the in summertime, and that sunlight is really important to um, to driving all those chemical cycles that make the secondary air pollution. Okay, and then the the other part you were talking about is um, ozone. Maybe people have heard this. There might be maybe they've heard in this space. You know, you have these two key drivers of what these compounds that react with sunlight to form ground level ozone are summertime yep. problem in, in Salt Lake, these volatile organic compounds and these oxides of nitrogen. Right. And depending on where you are, what you were telling us is that you wanna figure out 
which one do you start turning down first? Because sometimes you'll go through a phase where you'll turn down the wrong one and it'll actually for a while increase ozone pollution because um, of the, you know, the particular amounts and this is where we'll just tell people chemistry, wave our hands and say yeah. Uh, but it's chemistry, but it's pretty real world. I mean, uh, mm. like, like we're witnessing this happen in other parts of the world right now. So for example, you know, air pollution in China, it's very, it's legendary right now. You know, people know these are very polluted areas and, um, you know, the Chinese government has really dedicated itself to getting this problem under control and they've started to turn these emissions down. And the first thing that happened to them was it got worse. Wow. And the reason it got the reason it got worse was because they were on the wrong side of this nonlinear relationship. And uh, if they keep turning those knobs, it's going to get better eventually. But it uh, it takes uh, sometimes it takes more emission reduction. Um, it takes more than a small amount of in, emission reduction to actually make the problem better. Sometimes. Yeah. So maybe I think that the practical application is if you're a regulator, you say, I have a budget that's this big. There, you know, I've got to prioritize what I'm attacking in year one, right. two, three, four, and you say, so I want to prioritize turning the right knob this year. Yeah, like you said, I can, I can, I can choose the wrong knob, and eventually, we'll things will line up, and we'll start going on the, the right trajectory. But you want to make that that correct call. So a technique that's good for this year here might not be the technique that's best for this year in China. Um, right. Right. That's ozone. And what you discovered is the novel thing. That's actually similar for PM 2.5, at least in, in Salt Lake, because we have such a unique, um, this, this situation with secondary formation. And right. you found that the first knob we should be turning here is the VOCs. That's right. So our, our study shows that the uh, reductions in VOCs would be the most effective mitigation strategy for PM 2.5 in the wintertime in Salt Lake. Okay, really cool, super fascinating. Did it, um, and I wanted, because I can't help myself, and you had been looking at wintertime ozone formation in the Uinta Basin. Again, we've mentioned relatively new, these researchers were, hadn't seen that and observed it in the United States and Pine Dell, Wyoming and the Uinta Basin here in Utah, yep. kind of the first yep. places this happened. The same thing, you've got this chemical reaction. Why is it there that we're getting ground level ozone? It's colder, snowier, yep. or at least yep. maybe snow lasts on the ground longer. Why did yep. they get ground level ozone and we got PM 2.5? Yeah, we wondered the same thing. Uh, and it's really interesting problem. You know, people had all kinds of wacky theories about this when these observations first came out, including that the observations were wrong, you know, that it that, mm -hmm. uh, wasn't really ozone, um, which was a plausible thing to think about. We really had to think about it. You know, did, did the instruments work under these conditions? Was it really ozone? But, but it's really ozone. And, uh, and, you know, disappointingly enough, as a scientist, it turned out not to be anything exotic. Uh, in other words, it's all the same chemistry we already know about. It just happens mm -hmm. in the wintertime. And the real key to understanding those areas is just to note that they are oil and gas producing regions. And that's what's really unique about them. And so what happens, of course, in an oil and gas producing region is that 
there is some emission of these things we've already talked about, volatile organic compounds. And uh, what we were able to show through a few different winters in the Uinta Basin, and um, yeah, I can, I can tell you stories about spending uh, winters out there and, and chasing this problem that are, that are, that are sort of entertaining. Um, uh, you know, our measurement site was at a place called Horsepool, uh, which I always found to be a very entertaining name uh, out there on the uh, on the bench of, above the, the Green River out in uh, out in the Uinta Basin. But um, but we, uh, you know, it it just turns out that uh, the the concentrations of volatile organic compounds that are you know very unsurprisingly result from the oil and gas activities in that region are very, very high compared to the levels of these nitrogen oxides that I was talking about, right? So I already said, these are the two things, these are two ingredients you need for ozone. And normally it takes those two things plus a whole lot of sunlight. So it's gotta be summertime out to make ozone. So, but if you adjust this ratio exactly right, it's like running, it's like running the right mixture of fuel and air in your engine or something like this to get maximum power, you can really optimize the cycle that makes ozone just by adjusting the volatile organic compound to nitrogen oxide ratio exactly right. And so it when turns you say out optimize, you mean in a not good way, like we just so optimizing to put out the right pollutants. So I'm not, yeah. right. So I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to use the word optimize to say that this is a, mm. this is a good outcome. I'm trying to say mm. it's what makes this chemical cycle, this, this chemistry very, very efficient. And so, uh, and, and it just turns out those oil and gas emissions uh, uh, produce those pollutants in pretty much the right ratio to do this in the winter time. And so there are, really, there are really two things going on. One is, first of all, you have the winter meteorology out there, right? And so you got the inversions, the air is trapped very close to the ground. And what that does, that performs the function of really increasing the amount of, uh, you know, the, the concentrations of these emissions that come from oil and gas. And that's right? because that's, so, people think of it just as a lid, stuff that's not getting out. It's just a lid, you, that's absolutely right. So these emissions can't go anywhere. It's a, it's a big basin. You put a lid on the basin, there's no way for the air to get out of there, and it just sits there. Isn't that also important that it's, that lid also serves to really tamp down on wind? That's absolutely, that's right. So the winds are, winds are very stagnant. Um, you don't get much mixing uh, vertically. So things get very, very concentrated. And then uh, in the wintertime, very frequently, and in fact, this is required, you have snow on the ground. And so that effectively doubles the amount of sunlight you have. You can, you can think mm. about it. So uh, the, the, the snow on the ground also serves to make that lid a little tighter, uh, as it turns out meteorologically. So when there's snow on the ground, that lid gets just a little bit tighter because the heat can't escape. Uh, you know, that's a meteorological effect. Um, and then you also have some increased sunlight, and it turns out that that emission source from oil and gas is giving you the ingredients that make ozone in just exactly the right ratio that it can happen in the wintertime. And so why you get this as a wintertime phenomenon turns out to be only because the meteorological conditions are right, and the emissions are just exactly in the right ratio for this to happen very efficiently. And so it seemed very mysterious when it was first observed because mm. nobody ever saw winter ozone before. But when you really look into the details of it and you go out there and make some, some very detailed measurements, which we did actually for three successive winters in 2012, 2013, 2014 out there, 
um, you know, we, we learned that there's, there's nothing exotic about this. This is ordinary ozone, mm. but it, uh, it has just exactly the right conditions to form. Um, and you get a lot of it, really quite a lot of it. In fact, it's just the uh, geography in the industry that's exotic. Yeah, yeah. You, you got it. And it's, uh, you know, if you looked at ozone in 2013 and I, you know, I made, I made a plot like this for one of the scientific papers we published, uh, you could show that ozone in the Uinta Basin of Utah was a far more serious problem than ozone in Riverside, California in the Los Angeles Basin which is kind of the place where in, urban, in an urban sense, ozone is, is the worst uh, anywhere in the, in the country and traditionally it's been the worst anywhere in the world. So, um, so it, it's sort of a perfect storm for ozone out there and, that, and that's why you get it. Um, but it's really interesting to contrast. So then you have to ask the question, why, why isn't that happening in Salt Lake? Because you got the same kind of meteorology, right? You got these inversions, you got a lot of air pollution sources. They're being trapped in a low ventilation environment like this. They build up to these really high concentrations. And it goes back to what I was telling you about with nitrogen oxides. So the oil and gas industry produces a lot of VOCs and not very much NOx in terms of what kind of air pollution is produced from that industry. An urban area is kind of the opposite because uh, you got a lot of cars driving around, uh, a lot of home heating going on. You have a lot of nitrogen oxides and somewhat less volatile organic compounds, right? And so that chemical mixture, when you put it under the same conditions, makes ammonium nitrate. And mm. that's just, so it's the same cycles, but in the Uinta Basin, the outcome is ozone in the wintertime. And in the Salt Lake Valley, the outcome is fine particulate matter in the wintertime. Really? So we can it's all the same stuff. Yeah. If we you know, something mysterious happened and all of a sudden our VOCs went up significantly or our, we really diminished our NOx pollution to find that ratio, all of a sudden we'd say you could have ozone. EM 2.5 is great, but ozone's terrible in Salt Lake and yeah. now. Really? Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, it's sort of unlikely that you would find that that uh, exactly right, you know, mixture out of an urban area, mm -hmm. but but uh, yeah, I mean that's that's not impossible um, in, well, in the sense that we've already shown from looking at how, how it works with the oil and gas industry in the place like Uinta, that it is possible to, for this to yeah. form. So. Um, and a last question on this, and then I want to talk a little bit about, you know, how do we address this, how to mitigate it. Um, so do, do we have a similar issue with uh, you know, not all parts of, you know, probably less snow cover here than the Uinta Basin just because they're colder, sticks around longer, but, you know, that inversion layer sweeps in a lot of the foothills that would have more snow and the valley does get snow. Do we also get that? I, I'm just, when you were talking about that, I'm reminded of like those old school tanning shields that sometimes people <laughs> in. Do we Do we get that effect with the PM2.5 as well? Sure you do, yeah. Um, you, you mean where the where the, the the sunlight reflects off the snow and you actually because of the get... snow, it's it's high, yeah, it's supercharging yeah. the light. <laughs> exactly right, yeah. So that 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 effect happens also in the in the Salt Lake Valley. Yeah. Same same thing. So again, um, I mean, it's you know, I'm a scientist, so I like to think about this. I get real nerdy about this. There's two uh, effects going on there. One is when you have the snow on the ground, it makes the lid tighter. And the other is that when you have the snow on the ground, it makes the sunlight more intense. And both of those things contribute 
to secondary air pollution. Okay, I'm not the scientist, so I'll just say it reminds me of the tanning shield. But yeah, um, there you go. Okay, <laughs> however you want to think about it. So other than you know, like the obvious one, if there are people listening to this and in the winter they've decided it was a good idea to just spray hairspray directly into the air, knock it off, stop doing that. That's not good. <laughs> you know, aside from that, what is the the implication of this better understanding about secondary formation in Salt Lake. So, you know, people listening to this are saying like, cool, interesting, I'm scared because of the chemistry, but what can we do so I'm not breathing this now? What can we do so I don't have yeah. this dirty air in Salt Lake? Right, yeah, so, and this, this is at some point where the scientists get off the bus and the policymakers and the regulators have to get on the bus. Uh, mm -hmm. But what we, you know, what we do is we try to provide this kind of information. So mm. what are the emissions? Can we quantify those? What are the chemical, what are the relevant chemical processes and how do those inter em emissions interact with each other and how, and what can we tell to your regulatory community about that? And then we also need to work with the meteorologists who are going to tell us something about how uh, all these all of these emissions and all this chemistry is mixed together and trapped and for how long and things like that, right? So you really need to understand all those those pieces. Um, but then, you know, we engage with the with the, the people uh, at the at the regulatory agencies in in Utah, and we do this actually with other states. We do this certainly in California and Texas and Colorado and the Northeast and the Midwest and the Southeast. So you know, this is a very common thing for us to do. We're we're going to provide that information to people who will uh, put it into what you would call a regulatory model, right? So um, and by regulatory model, I mean they're going to take the best state of the science. And they're going to build a model of the atmosphere that's as predictive as it can be. And then they're going to go into that model and they're going to start turning those knobs and they're going to say, well, you know, now what happens if we turn this emission down or what happens if we turn that emission down? And that is, that is really the scientific basis that leads to uh, regulations on, um, you know, various kinds of air pollutants. So are we going to put tighter controls on automobiles, for example, the nitrogen oxides coming out of automobiles? Are we going to put tighter controls on residential wood combustion and try to control that source? And you know, what can we say based on the state of the science that's going to allow us to say, you know, to the best of our understanding, the most efficient, the most effective way to reduce that PM 2.5 concentration, as we've talked about, is to, is to turn this knob over here. That's, that's mm -hmm. the best one to turn now. And so, you know, our job really is to provide the best information that we can to your regulatory agencies and to the people who are charged with running these, as I say, regulatory models, and certainly the, the Environmental Protection Agency at the federal level also does a lot of this kind of work. They work in concert with, uh, with people at the state level to do this. Uh, but they're really the ones who are charged with identifying those kinds of emissions reductions and putting the policies in place. Yeah. One question and follow up there, because you mentioned modeling to help us think yeah. through what things do we address. Um, what is the state of modeling? How accurate are those models? And did your research help modelers to understand that the technologies, because we know we've had these long running models to predict ozone, but for secondary PM 2.5, because there aren't a lot of places that 
that have the same problem we do, was part of your research telling them, well, you can use your model for ozone, tweak a few things, and that will help you predict um, PM 2.5 in the winter in Salt Lake. Yeah, and um, so, I, so I would say yes, that, that, is, that is certainly the case. Um, but I, it's also, uh, you know, by the time you get to these regular, these very fairly complex models like this, um, there's a lot going on in one of those models. And so the, the chemistry is an important part of this and really just understanding that there's a knob over here that you should consider, I think is the thing that we've been able to say. In other words, a lot of times when you start to think about ammonium nitrate pollution in particular in the wintertime, you're thinking, well, you know, I, I need to understand the ammonia and I need to understand the nitrogen oxides and I just have to understand the balance between those two things. And those are my knobs in my model. And, all, and you know, we're not changing anyone's model. We're saying, hey, you know, look over here. You got another knob on this model that you might want to consider when you're thinking about how to best address this problem. And that's really, I think that's really how we've tried to help inform specifically your, your community in, in thinking gotcha. about this problem. But, you know, more broadly, I'd say a lot of the uncertainties and the difficulties, especially in a place like Salt Lake, uh, with these kinds of uh, models comes from meteorology. So uh, these inversions that we, that we started with and talking about, um, these are very, very hard uh, weather events to predict accurately, as it turns out. And mm. you don't get any of this stuff right in that kind of a model until you get the meteorology right. And so there's a lot to be done there. That's why I said uh, you have really good meteorologists at the University of Utah who do a lot of this kind of work. and um, you know, that's, I think, as much as anything, as much as any of the chemistry that I told you about, where there's a lot of really active research going on to try to understand what happens in mountain basins uh, when you have air pollution events. You mentioned uh, as the, the researcher, the chemist, um, providing the information, and at some point you get off the bus and hand it over to yeah. policy. Yeah. Touch on that briefly, especially for those who are listening or viewing, because I think one thing to one possible takeaway is you hear about this complexity, and complexity can often be lead to paralysis. Say like, oh, boy, what do we even do? Let's throw our hands up and, um, you know, me editorializing for people that are still concerned and saying, well, what what should we do? We've made significant progress on air quality here in Salt Lake without knowing this complexity. And in many ways, it's continuing that. Now, I think you know, with better information, we can say, hey, we happen to get a grant for 20 million. Should we spend that on getting people to, um, you know, helping to stop these particular industrial processes that are really heavy on VOCs? Or should we go after some of this these emissions that are more NOx dominant. I think that, that in particular is where the application of a lot of this complexity goes. But if, if you're concerned about air quality, I mean, we still know that so many things that happen here, we need to move away from combustion as much as we can. A lot of different chemical and industrial processes, we want to see them become more efficient, cleaner. Um, you know, we, uh, policy making is always about taking the best information you have and kind of stumbling forward. And I feel like that's, it's similar and it's great to have this information. We can, we can become better and, and more savvy, but it doesn't, 
wouldn't want anybody to walk away from this and say, ah, it's just too complicated. We shouldn't even try anymore because I really don't think that's the answer at all. No, and I, I would, I guess I would just echo that perspective. I mean, if you, if you look at the history of air pollution, uh, it's exactly as you say, uh, we have made enormous progress, not just in Salt Lake, uh, but, mm -hmm. but nationwide. I mean, you think about air, you think about how bad the Los Angeles basin was in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, it was, you know, the air pollution there was extremely severe. Um, they still have an air pollution problem there today, but it's but the air is much cleaner than it was. And and I guess all I'm trying to communicate to you and your audience is the way that happens is that you keep getting better at the science. You keep getting better at feeding that information out to people who can use it. And then the people who are charged with using that information have to make best use of it. And that's how you get to um, the kind of success story that I think we have actually seen in this country in the last 40 years. And so, you know, I'm optimistic about the future. I think you're going to have clean air in Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. I would, well, what can I say? You're going to have cleaner and cleaner air over time in, in Salt Lake, just like we have seen cleaner and cleaner air in many parts of the country uh, over decades. Um, you know, if you look forward from right now, I think the threats to that are things like wildfire emissions. Um, and there are things like really understanding how have emissions changes occurred, not just in the United States, but on a global basis. And, you know, what's in the background these days, things like that. So we need to address these issues at a variety of scales and from a variety of sources. And we need to look at the interaction between air quality and, and climate change. Um, and um, so I think we've got a, a, a lot of scientific research ahead of us. And... Um, I also think we're going to see a lot of progress on uh, on air quality in the years to come. Well, this seems like a great way to end the program. And I need to apologize. I, I promised you, that I told you this would be shorter, but you've been, I've been so enthralled with this. Um, what a great, uh, I mean, thank you so much. This has yeah. been so enlightening. And I hope this was really helpful for people listening to understand a little bit more of what's going on and some of the exciting, interesting research that you and your colleagues have been doing to help us understand this better so we can tackle it. And, you know, the one, one caveat I would add, we need good for information to act. We need everybody listening and viewing is, I think we all know that good information doesn't necessarily lead to good decisions. You're there to help policymakers make good decisions. And that's what we need all of you for. But Steve, thank you so much for coming on. If people want to learn a little bit more about your research or maybe look at some of the papers you've written and dig into this a bit more, where should they go? Yeah, you can find us uh, probably most easily on a Google search. If you just Google NOAA, that's N-O-A-A, which stands for National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, but we are at the NOAA Chemical Sciences Laboratory. If you put that into a Google search, You'll find us, uh, I run a program here called the Tropospheric Chemistry Program. You can drill down a little bit, or you can just look for my name on that website. You'll see uh, links to the papers I've published uh, on Utah and elsewhere. And, um, and I'll just say thanks for the opportunity to be here. It's been a lot of fun and I lost track of time, so I don't even care if we went over. <laughs> well, Steve, again, thank you so, so much. Sincerely appreciate it to our listeners, our viewers. Thank you for tuning in. Um, Again, I'm David Garbett, your host with O2 Utah. And until next time, 
Farewell, everyone.